Hello, I'm Sharon Collin and you are listening to the ADHD Families Podcast. I am a mum of three beautiful boys with ADHD. I love being a mum, but my home life was absolute chaos and the stress of daily life had a terrible effect on my health. My husband had so many horror-filled stories of growing up with ADHD that I decided I wanted to change the experience for my little boys. So I got to work and I systematically changed and streamlined my family's lives to suit the ADHD brain. And now that I have my family on track, I want to help yours. Do you want a life with your beautiful kids that is more functional, fun, and full of joy? Let's explore together the wonderful and sometimes wacky world of raising kids with ADHD. Hi everyone, welcome to another episode of the ADHD Families Podcast. Today I have the amazing Christina Keeble. Christina is a neurodivergent consultant who delivers seminars to parents, carers and professionals. She supports families, schools and businesses around Australia and the world in practical um, research-backed, trauma-informed strategies, development and implementation, collaboration and training. Christina, Uh, develops practical resources and programs to be implemented in schools, businesses and at home to support autistic and ADHD individuals. Welcome, Christina. Thank you. Thanks, Sharon. Thanks for having me. I'm excited to be here. I am so excited for you to be on the podcast. I actually uh, got connected with you through an amazing client of both of ours. And I was so excited to see your website and see all the amazing work that you're doing in this area. Oh, thank you. Yeah, no, um, it's I love connecting and collaborating and same, I explored your uh, website and found, yeah, I was like, why haven't I found her sooner? <laughs> so I'm glad we finally connected. Oh, it's wonderful. Now tell me, I'd love to hear a little bit about you and your story. Oh, okay. So um, my story, I always say it's kind of unlucky that my stories kind of come full circle. Um, I am originally from the U.S., uh, I've been in Australia um, this year's 19 years. Um, and when I just before I came to Australia, I had finished my uni degree and I had actually started volunteering and then ended up teaching at an early childhood reverse inclusion preschool. That was the first time that I'd been around autistic students um, and students. Uh, with disabilities. And I just fell in love with it. I was, you know, my original degree was psychology. And when I came to Australia, I was kind of making, I had to make a choice. I could either continue to become a psychologist, um, which had been the original plan, or um, become a teacher. And and I did end up uh, in doing my postgrad here in Australia, becoming a teacher and working in different specialist settings um, in New South Wales and in Victoria. Uh, and just, just loved it. Um, yeah, it was, it was always really fulfilling. Um, and then I ended up, um, meeting my amazing husband. We had our two beautiful kids. Um, at that time I wasn't, I had actually left the classroom. I was uh, lucky enough to be a full-time stay at home mom. Um, and we all know kids change us, right? So, and it's true. Nobody can prepare you for that. Uh, but I realized, I didn't realize at the time, but I was struggling more um, than I'd expected. And as time went on, um, the needs of my children 
you know, I, I had nothing to compare it to, but but were quite intense. And I, I was neglecting myself in the process because um, that's what we do. We give everything to our children because they, they need us. And um, down the track, my kids got diagnosed. Um, so my kids are autistic and ADHD. They're actually both PDAers as well. But through that process, it led me to my uh, neurodivergence. So I got diagnosed after my kids. So I am um, got diagnosed as autistic and ADHD at 37. And it was life changing um, in a positive way. So it's, I'm lucky that it was a uh, such a positive experience for me. My family had at that point been in crisis for a good three or four years. Um, and thankfully the diagnosis and then subsequent medication. So I took ADHD meds for the first time at 38. Um, again, amazing positive experience. And that's what allowed me to start to be able to make the changes my family needed so we could get out of crisis. Um, because of the complexity of our family, we had many lovely, lovely, well-intentioned therapists um, and people trying to support us, but nobody knew what we needed. So because I did have a background in working with with kids and neurodivergent kids, um, ADHD and autistic and everything, everything they were suggesting was, I guess, the stuff I already knew. Um, and it wasn't working anyway. Uh, but I was like, I kind of need the next stuff. And they're like, oh, don't really, I don't know, you're, you guys are a tricky family. And, and they'd end up discharging us because there was no one who could support us, um, which is then what led me to start to research our, you know, my, on my own once um, my mental health was in a better place and, and I wasn't just, you know, uh, surviving, so to speak. And yeah, that led me to learn about um, PDA. It, it led me to to learn about um, relationship-based ways of parenting, which were at odds with the way I'd been parenting, which had been very behaviorist based, based on all the training I'd ever done, uni and everything. Um, and yeah, it's really been just a really amazing journey that it's not, it hasn't all been easy. <laughs> and we still have massively, you know, tricky days and weeks and months. It, it kind of seems to go in cycles, but we have a better understanding and we have an idea of where we're going. And, you know, my husband and I are on the same page and the kids are part of the journey now. Um, and it's just, yeah, we're in a much better place than where we were. And so my business ended up starting as a hobby to keep my sanity <laughs> for a while. But it, as I learned and grew as a teacher and everything, my business grew and changed. And now that's why I support um, professionals, but also mainly parents um, and carers and families with tricky families like mine, who are kind of at where I was, you know, a few years ago. Oh my gosh, <clears throat> I love hearing that journey. And I think it will resonate a lot with our audience, because so many of the mums that I work with, they go on to find that they have a diagnosis themselves a little bit later. So what you're describing is very common and it can be quite a shock because um you know how, how do you think that you went all those years without being diagnosed you know were you great at masking or <laughs> what, what were you doing my husband jokes all the time he's like how did you go well it was I like 28 years without knowing me meaning him because he's <laughs> he's he's amazing uh, not perfect <laughs> but definitely amazing and helps me and has a lot of the strengths that 
that I don't have. So compensates for, for my, the things that I struggle with. And really I, I, I've thought about it and up until, so all the way through school and through high school, my mom was really amazing. She was the person who did the things that I needed to be able to function and succeed at school. One of my things that protected me, I think, from um, having trouble at school as I was classed as academically gifted and the way the structure of, you know, education in the 80s and 90s was, I was tracked along with the other gifted kids. And my mom served as my executive function. She kept everything on track. And I just really had to, you know, study and do the stuff. That was her big thing is, you know, you have to go to uni. When I became an adult and I wasn't at home anymore, I'd kind of set up my life in a way without realizing it consciously that I had enough downtime. I had enough recovery time. I set it up in a way to meet my needs, which, um, like I, I need a lot of sleep and rest to recover and a lot of quiet time, which we know with kids is very, is, is nearly impossible. But when it was just me and I was teaching, like I could teach for that amount of time and then I'd come home and it was just me. I lived on my own. Um, you know, on the weekends I had, again, that was recovery time and, and it's, it just kind of worked. I was, you know, my house was always messy, I suppose. I wasn't the tidiest person but you know I, I still managed to do the basic functions because that was all I had it was just me things got more complicated once you know my husband and I got married and then that dynamic changed things and then when the kids came along it was yeah they really made me start to try and juggle way more balls in the air and and I just couldn't do it all on my own mm-hmm. it's so interesting to hear you talk about that now I heard you mention before about PDA now I am certain now you're quite an expert in this area and I am certain that there is a lot of people listening to this I hate the term Um, expert because no (laughs) when you search it you definitely come up and uh and I would love to hear what it is because I'm sure that there are people listening that have no idea what it is um you know it was definitely one of the later things that I learned about (coughs) what is it and how can we support our beautiful family members that have PDA no, thank you. I appreciate the, the term expert. I will say, though, the experts are those who live it. Um, and I will say that while both my children are PDAers, I'm definite, pretty, pretty sure I'm not one, um, just based on, you know, all the readings and things. Now, saying that um, families like mine with PDA kids and the complexities that they bring are generally the ones that I support. And going into that, let's, I guess, what PDA is. So the technical terminology, which I'm not personally a fan of, is pathological demand avoidance. Um, Now, some of the research that is out there and being um, conducted at the moment will refer to it as extreme demand avoidance, but they will always put PDA in as well. Another way to say that, that some adult PDAers um, have come up with as a phrase is pervasive drive for autonomy. And as a mum, as I've been on this journey and trying to figure out what was going on with my kids, why was all the stuff that I'd been trained and practiced and, you know, been directed to over and over and over again, even by professionals who were trying to help me at the time, wasn't working and why was it making things worse at home and more stressful and I couldn't work it out. And when I discovered PDA, I was, it was light bulb moments. And when I heard about the phrase pervasive drive for autonomy, I was like, that is it. Now, what PDA 
it's not a diagnosis. Um, and actually, I, I just presented about this to a um, psychology conference at a psychology conference. I don't think it's actually necessarily helped to become one. So it's not in the DSM. It's not in the ICD uh, thing, but it's a behavior profile. So and, and by that, I mean, it's a collection of characteristics that a certain population has in common. And this is where it's come out of. And the research only started in the 80s. So it's still very new. Um, but basically what happens is, is individuals with this profile, they, they struggle to meet the demands of everyday life. And it's, it seems to be fueled by an extreme anxiety or heightened nervous system. And what I, what I mean by when I think about it, it's always like struggles to meet the demands of everyday life. What, what exactly does that mean? A demand is just an expectation. So an example of a demand is, you know, um, go get your shoes because we got to get in the car. That's a direct demand. Um, the, the demands of everyday life are things like that we ask kids to do all the time. Get your shoes, get dressed, eat, take, brush your teeth, um, take a shower. You know, it's time to go to sleep. I think the more you learn about it, the stuff like in my mind, I can understand why kids don't want to do that. To me, most kids, you know, at one time or another, don't want to do all that stuff. It's really about the degree to which it presents. But the other thing that I found, especially in my own children and in other families, is that not only does it lead them to not be able to engage in the everyday things, but it leads them to not be able to engage in the things that they love and are passionate about because there's too many demands around it. Um, and as a parent, that's for me, as frustrating as it is when the kids don't want to do as I say, um, the thing that breaks my heart is when they love something, but they actually can't engage with it. They want to, they can't engage with it because of all the demands around it. Um, my, one of my children, for example, every year, we uh, had to make a decision and, and it wasn't my decision. It was their decision whether or not they could have a birthday party. Um, they always wanted one, you know, they loved it, but based on past experiences, they realized that they couldn't always tolerate it. And I remember one year, you know, doing it, they were turning seven. I said, are you sure that you want to do this? If they didn't, we always did like a family experience and still made a special time. They were like, no, I really want to do it. Go to this like um, rope climbing place or something with friends. My husband and I set it up, got everything going. Um, we got through the day, but there was a lot of um, opposition, oppositional or demand avoidant behavior, um, a lot of aggression towards us because us talking to them and everything was putting demands and pressure on them. Um, and so really we had to completely back off, um, at the same time, trying to keep them safe. And there was swearing and lots of things and lots of looks from other parents who were like, why is this kid being so ungrateful? Um, and that wasn't the case at all. Anyway, through the end, we avoided any big meltdowns. We get home, husband and I are exhausted. And I was like, I wonder if that was even like pleasant for them, tucking them into bed. And they said to me, I'm so sorry, mom, for the way I behaved today. I had the best day. Thank you so much. I love you. And like, I was on the verge of tears and I said, don't, don't apologize because we know that it's not you. That's not you. You're not in control in these moments. Um, we just wanted you to have a good time and that's great. So these are the kind of things that 
happen in, in PDA. Um, that is just one example. Um, and I'm, there's probably so much more I could talk about, but it's, it can present as oppositional behavior. In my personal and professional opinion, I feel that oppositional defiance disorder, um, I've always believed that was a rubbish diagnosis, that it was too hard, the kids in the too hard basket, because they always had all of the acronyms and diagnoses. Basically, I see PDA as, um, as a compassionate reframe of ODD. Um, when we look at the kids and they're actually struggling and, and the actions that they do because of the level of anxiety and their nervous system, they're not in control. Just like we're not in control when a crocodile starts chasing us, our brain goes into fight or flight and takes over. Yeah. So that's kind of a short summary. <laughs> oh my gosh. I just like, you know, that resonated so much with me because I can hear, like, even when you're talking about the birthday party story, we've had very similar experiences uh, in our house as well and uh, all my kids have been flagged as ODD and it's never quite even that label has never quite never quite fit um, and yeah I, I yeah it's a highly really stig- it's a highly stigmatizing label um, coming from a teacher perspective saying that I tell families all the time I was like if ODD is going to help with funding go for it. Um, besides that, I, I don't find it a helpful diagnosis. And when you actually look and understand the things around uh, PDA, and I've taught so many kids who, who were labeled ODD and the strategies that I was kind of intuitively using with them, having to connect with them first, I knew it would be really, it, it would take a lot more effort on my part to be able to connect with them. So I could kind of develop a relationship as a teacher or student, and that had to occur first before I could even think about trying to teach him anything. Um, all of those kind of things are, you know, the PDA strategies. And I really, yeah, I really do believe that uh, PDA is a compassionate reframe, looking through this frame of the kid is struggling versus the kids giving us a hard time and not listening to what we say. Now, you touched on there that importance of connection. Hmm. Can you tell me how... Um, so if someone's listening to this podcast and they're thinking, oh, my goodness, I think this is connecting <laughs> yeah. a lot of dots for, for us, how can we support these beautiful kids or beautiful family members that have PDA? Yeah. Um, look, there's there's so many things. One, I think at the heart of everything is the is your relationship to the child, be it you're the, you're the teacher or you're the parent or you're the grandparent to your relationship to them and developing a strong and safe relationship where they feel safe in your presence um, is paramount. And interestingly, so with PDA at the moment, the research says that the child is supposed to be autistic. I've had, I've, I've been reading and interacted with a lot of families who were like, oh, my kid's definitely not autistic, but I think they're PDA, they're ADHD. And I think they're PDA or my child has the diagnosis reactive attachment disorder, but I think PDA fits, you know, that kind of thing. And for me with the way, with what I do, and definitely when it was me as a family, it wasn't so much about whether they, I could tick all the right boxes of the criteria for me, it was, you know what? What I've been doing hasn't worked, so let me learn the strategies. And if the strategies work when nothing else has, well, that's great because we want to support them. And and for us, it was about bringing a bit more peace and enjoyment back into our family. Um, the, and the connection is the start of that. 
at the same time, there's it's a very um, I don't know paradoxical, I suppose, diagnosis where when the child has a safe and tr- strong relationship where they feel really secure in being themselves and they're not masking and pretending, you know, to get by or do what somebody what they think somebody wants especially in the beginning, it can be much more challenging to support them because you are a safe person. So they can authentically be themselves and not try and hide it. And that's why, you know, generally, not 100% of the time, but generally the parents and at home are the ones who see this and the teachers are like, oh no, they're great. They're, they're the best this and that. And it doesn't, it, it's not seen. And, and it, it's, it's really like Dr. Jekyll, Mr. or Mrs. Hyde. And I remember just, you know, going to the school and and being, keeping in mind I am a teacher, then making me feel like I was this over-worried, over-anxious, paranoid helicopter parent. And I'm like, no, you don't understand what happens at home. Like you, but they're like, oh, but we don't see it. So it's fine. I'm like, but what you do at school is impacting their capacity, which then impacts us at home. So it's there's so much and it's so deep but definitely connecting um when families start you know we talk about creating a lower not not as in completely non-existent but a lower demand environment um which means reduction of expectations in the beginning especially because the nervous system is so heightened it's like if this is fight or flight that when we cross over that, our brain takes over and is in survival mode. Most PDAers, you know, they're hovering here, like when families are in crisis. So there's like this teeny tiny amount of room, whereas other kids may be way down here. So there's lots of room to adapt and adjust and be flexible. Um, so we want to bring down and support the regulation. And part of that is reducing demands, but you still have to have boundaries. But it's how we do it. You know, it's holding loving boundaries. It's bringing them into, you know, you know, as part of the team and collaborating with them. It's a lot of negotiation. It's us being flexible. It, it taught me how much of a control freak I was. <laughs> Instead of like, you know, I could hear my parents too, just do it because I said so. Um, like in my head, and I'm just, because they genuinely challenge with these amazing insights. And I'm like, I, I, I don't know. Can you just help me out? <laughs> Can you just do it, please? Um, but it's this whole for me, it was a 180 in parenting. And my husband, my husband is 10 years older, um, had already raised kids. They were adults, um, different generation. And for us, it was a big 180. For for a lot of families, it's not that drastic. Um, but still, there's this whole shift in how we interact, in how we respond. Um, it's a big shift, but it starts with reconnecting earning their trust back, creating this safe space environment, having unconditional positive regard. So there's unconditional love. We all love our children unconditionally. And every parent I met has pretty much said, I would die for my kids right now. We will do that. Unconditional positive regard, though, is important as well. And that is when, I guess simply is when we let the kids know that no matter what you do, it could be the worst thing imaginable in their minds or our minds, no matter what you do, that will not impact our relationship. I may not agree with it or condone it, but I got you and I'm here for you no matter what. And, and that's a really important factor because a lot of the practices, the parenting practices, the behaviorist based practices are grounded in this reward and consequence thing. And when that becomes our attention, 
Like if we're only paying attention when they're doing what we want them to do and things like that, we're not sending that message of I've got your back no matter what. It becomes this, oh, well, I'll pay attention and, you know, we'll have a great time when you're behaving the way I want. But once you do, I'm not going to pay attention and I'm going to, you know, try and minimize that so that it kind of comes back to that, if that makes sense. Oh, my goodness. You are speaking my language here. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, Because I definitely feel that and we talk a lot in the functional family about that connection and, you know, trying to talk to your kid about, we we say the saying, like, there's no mistake you can't come back from. Like, we can figure it out together. Like, we can figure it out. Um, I, I really love this. And I think that having that beautiful connection, like when, when we're focused on, so focused on trying to get our children to succeed or behave the way we want them to, we're kind of missing like what they need from us, which is uh, yeah. like, is that unconditional like support really? Um, yeah. Yeah. Exactly. Oh, it's just wonderful. Now tell me when you go into, cause you're a consultant, so you go into schools and you talk in seminars and that sort of stuff like that. What do you talk to people about so yeah it it depends on the environment um i i also do so with the with the talks in in schools and whatnot sometimes it's just to the staff sometimes it's to the families and the staff um generally that's around things such as neurodiversity affirming practice topics like pda um supporting neurodivergent students um so supporting adhd Uh, and autistic. I've done some just on supporting ADHD students, um, but always from this neurodiversity affirming practice model and from a strengths-based and relationship-based model. I've done trainings for organizations, uh, disability organizations around how to support neurodivergent individuals in a strengths-based, relationship-based way. Done stuff about autism, ADHD, PDA. Um, when I, the other thing I suppose I do is I do one-on-one consults with families. Um, and I'm not a psychologist and I'm not a counselor, so I'm always very clear about that. Technically, I'm a teacher because <laughs> I'm still registered and everything. But I do have experience uh, in psychology fields and, and research. But what I do is it's. I get the background. I hear what's going on. Um, I ask certain questions. I kind of just get a really good picture of now and a little bit of the past. Then we, sometimes it's problem solving. Sometimes it's me giving information and upskilling the parents, psychoeducation, um, strategy development and looking at things. Sometimes at the moment I'm, I'm visiting people's homes if it's appropriate and we look at the environment. What can we tweak? Um, are there things that can make this, can we maximize and set up our home so it meets the needs of everyone? Because the it's, you would know, especially with when you have multiple neurodivergent people in a house, the conflicting needs, it's that classic, what calms one triggers the other and vice versa. And how do we all have our safe space? Like we all deserve to be able to regulate and to have our own space and and things like that. Um, yeah. And then, and then a lot of times, so I'm, I'm generally a burst of support. And, you know, we'll have some sessions. Um, I might connect them with other resources or other therapists or whatnot. And then sometimes people touch back in later. Yeah. So that's that's kind of the. Oh, my the goodness. I think that's wonderful. Now, tell me if people are looking for you, where can they find you? Yeah. So I am on uh, social media, uh, Facebook and 
Instagram and LinkedIn. So Christina Keeble Consulting is Facebook and Instagram. And on LinkedIn, it's Christina Keeble. And my website is uh, christinakeeble.com. Amazing. Thank you so much for your time today. I'm sure this my audience will love hearing what you, the important work that you do and hearing a little bit about your story. Thank you, thank you so much. Uh, thank you. And thanks for inviting me. I appreciate it. Thank you for listening to this episode of the ADHD Families Podcast. If you loved it, please share it on your socials. I want this to start a conversation about ADHD. If you want to make this mum do a little happy dance, please leave a review on iTunes. If you would like to know more about what we do, check out thefunctionalfamily.com. I truly hope that you enjoyed this podcast and you use it to create a wonderful, effective, joyful life with your beautiful children. Mm -hmm.